Frank, 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 Frank. Episode 290 of Merge Conflict is here. That's right. We're coming again with more technology, mobile, client, cloud shenanigans. Um, and these are our favorite episodes because every 10 episodes, if you're brand new after 290 episodes, what we do is on the 10th episode, so 280, 290, 300, 310, we do lightning topics. We reach out to you, our listeners, and say, what? Do you want us to talk about, because for the last nine episodes, you probably didn't even want to listen to any of that. So now you get to tune in to what you want to hear about. And we have great, great stuff, Frank, don't we? <laughs> we, we better, because I love the name Client Shenanigans. Uh, that could have been an alternate title for this podcast. I didn't know that's what we did, but it's what we do, according to you, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, the, these uh, these lightning episodes are one of my favorites, especially because this week we had great feedback from everyone online. You put a call out, said we need some lightning topic episodes, and we're going to cover them in some order. Who knows what? It's going to be great. I agree. And And to be honest, it's actually really hard for us to do this episode because both Frank and I independently came into this episode with a topic for a full episode. That never <laughs> happens, Frank. Like it's either like we get in and like neither of us have an idea of what we're going to talk about. That's usually the case. Or maybe one of us does, but never two of us like that never happens. It, it, it's exciting. And we'll see which one of us is the most patient and can put their idea off first and longest. Yeah, it's Ooh. fun. Mm. I do. I do want to say, though. Um, mini lightning topic. Did you know that you can reply in iMessage and create threaded conversations? Oh my God. I, I discovered it. And then I felt like, am I being too nerdy by doing this? But like my sister did it to me once. And I was like, yeah. what? What is this? And yeah, I'm like, what are they, teams or something? And all of a sudden, I, I kind of love it because like the IRC nerdy, you know, like Slack person in me wants to do it completely. But I haven't had the guts. Is it too nerdy? I love that Apple put it in, though. Is it new or is it, has it been there forever? I don't know. Years, couple years. I don't keep up with I, this stuff. You know, because I long press on stuff all the time and give it a thumbs up or a heart or whatever. And then I saw in another thread, my father-in-law did it. And I was like, I was like, what is that? I was like, <laughs> I he just did something that I have no idea this retired guy is using technology better than I can. It's amazing. Um, I guess it's intuitive then. If you know, everyone's using it, I'm in. I'm all in on on replies. Hmm. And I guess yeah, I, you're right. Okay, so that's funny. We, we, they were both introduced to us. Neither of us found it ourselves or paid attention during the WWDC video or whatever that where they were announced. But uh, yeah, um, I don't know. Uh, just because you said that, I'm going to thread reply to everything you sent me. Well, now. I think that. Well, I was talking to Heather about this and one of her friends uses replies heavily, like all the time. And she said, to me, it's an etiquette thing. If somebody uses replies, I try to also use replies, Oof. you know, thoughtfully in that conversation. But if nobody ever uses replies, then I don't. So I, I think that's good. But I think the other use case for it is, is I'm not just going to reply to everything, but sometimes you know, if I'm in a group thread or if you and I are talking, we might have like, I might just spew information at you or you at me, but you yeah. might want to pick out one thing and be like, oh, I want to start a thread on this thing. kind of. Yeah. And it's not like we all haven't had that funny thing where you're actually having two conversations at the same time and both parties are mostly keeping up. But at the same time, it's a little bit weird if you say a, a thing that could apply to both conversations. So that's kind of, 
I guess there is a natural case for it, I, but I think overusing it could be too formal, just too formal. Don't want to be formal in text messages. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think that the correct thing to do is give a thumbs or like to every single message, and that's pretty appropriate. All right, let's get into it. I'm going to kick it off. Dennis A. Landy on Twitter asks, because we just we just put it out on Twitter <laughs> and said, hey, what are your things? We're going in order here. .NET 6, minimal APIs, five minutes, Frank. What do we think? Uh, .NET 6 minimal APIs, I assume they're talking about like ASP.NET kind of launch files. I saw someone had a cute little meme out there and it was the confused person meme saying, uh, where's startup.cs? <laughs> like, where? Where do I put all the stuff that I used to put in the place? Um, I would say that they're cute. <laughs> I don't, they're, they definitely make for good demos. I'm not sure how I feel about them for like a full app for like a big app. Maintainability and easy ease of finding something is really good. And though I tend to design APIs that are comfortable with like a minimal approach, like we, I think is really cool. You can write really small apps and a very minimal API. Um, it's, 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 it's nice to put things in separate files under directories just so you can find them later and remember how the stupid project works. Mm. I think that they're talking about a hybrid of that with the HTTP API. Is that what you're talking about as well? Yeah, that, I, I'm okay. on both. Yeah, so what they did was use C Sharp 10 features to clean up uh, a the structure of the file. So lots of very little indentation, that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, added a lot of easy ways to create routes in ASP.NET that just route to a little function that you pass it. Very reminiscent of how JavaScript frameworks and Python frameworks would do it. And how we does it. <laughs> and how we does it. As a non-web developer that often is creating web APIs that aren't crazy complex. Um, I find these to be really powerful and nice. Mm -hmm. I, so, so what you can do is in this top level program, which is in your, you know, program.cs, you'll see like create a web app and you can say app.map get map post, give it a route and do stuff. And you can pass it a database and do the stuff. And because of C sharp 10 lambdas are so powerful, it can, you can pass anything to it. <laughs> and this is very similar to express, which, which is what you're saying is like JavaScript, you know, framework to create a minimal API or maybe flask, for example, and Python. So I think it's a nice compete. If you're not a web developer used to these other frameworks, you can go in there, right? It's not a replacement for controllers. It's a complement for controllers. If that fits your application best, the part that I like the most is that you could go into one file and you could see all of your routes all in one place, technically, right? It's calling a, de it's calling a, 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 a delegate Lambda. Those could be in a different file, right? But you could, you could really streamline the process and say, here are all of my routes, everything like this, all in one nice little file and read them easily. And I think that'd be pretty nice um, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I think where they especially shine is where you want to see all the routes is in like a REST API server you know, mm -hmm. something that's just dealing with data. It'd be fun to see um, 
this minimal API merge with something like Azure Functions, where it's like, sometimes I want to put them into a monolithic app where all these things exist together. Sometimes I want to break them out into many little apps or function invocation, things like that. Uh, anyway, two separate worlds. I don't know why I'm confusing them. I was just kind of thinking about that kind of stuff. Anyway, yep, I totally ap- I, I approve of both kinds of whatever we're talking about here, um, especially because it's how we does it. So, of course, I approve. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's I think it's solid. You know, I think it's an option. It's a tool in your toolbox. And I think about that with all of the new .NET um, and C Sharp 10 features, right? You don't have to use them. You don't have to. You don't have to do anything. No one's telling you that you have to use this or that. But there's obviously a, a desire for certain individuals that want to use features like this. Or maybe it's going to make you know, creating web APIs with .NET more approachable for people that are just getting started. Like, I think it's really cool that you can create a web API or a minimal web app in just a few lines of code. That to me is attractive to using a framework is that it can start simple, but then scale. And and you could add more of the, you know, logistics and, and ceremony to it later or architecture, if you will, um, later on. And I think that's nice about this type of stuff. Yeah, I like starting small. And like you said, all those features are optional, but they're definitely opinionated. When you .NET new, a new app, they definitely want, are promoting a, a minimal, minimal style, which, you know, I've sharp programmer too. I love that kind of stuff. Good topic. We could actually move on to the next one as a little bit of a segue because Nuno... <laughs> comes right out and asks, is Frank going to push we forward? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so yes, Nuno, I absolutely am uh, pushing we forward. The thing is, I'm in, we're in, we're all in a weird transitory migratory state right now called .NET 6. And I'm just waiting for a little bit more dust to settle before I put in the finishing touches um, to getting we to work because I assume you're talking about like .NET 6 and MAUI and that kind of stuff. So absolutely, absolutely. Just uh, things are rough right now and we needs to poke around a little bit and I don't want to keep repeating that work. I've worked on two MAUI versions of it already and already those two are broken. <laughs> so just, you know, waiting for the dust to settle. Yeah, and this question came about because Nuno was asking a lot about, hey, you know, I see Blazor and that you can, you know, share your Blazor UI in a .NET MAUI app with Blazor Hybrid. And, you know, there's not an, a, a web target if you're writing XAML, right? There's some other frameworks out there that do it, like Flutter. I think Avalonia maybe even have one or Uno or something like that. And there's the thing is .NET MAUI is not even launched yet, right? They, the team's got to finish the four platforms before they go to more <laughs> platforms. Um, but it's cool that, that you're going to you're gonna commit uh, here. Oh, Frank, geez. so I should update, I should update <laughs> soundbite.fm to .NET MAUI and then to Wii.NET MAUI flavor, pretty much is what you're saying. I mean, there is technically a branch of Wii out there that works with Preview 5 or 6 of <laughs> .NET 6 that is capable of showing buttons and labels, James. Ooh. So if your app is only buttons and labels, you are all set. I mean... You know, most of my apps literally, Frank, just put a number on the screen. So I mean, we're pretty much halfway there. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I might even have font support. It might be that advanced. Yeah, I, you know, and and you know, it, it's hard to 
to have every single target all at once, right? I think people are always asking like, why not this? Why not that? And if I look at how, you know, Flutter have evolved over time, right? I was going back in you know, history, like the alphas and the betas, right? It was just iOS and Android. And then, you know, it, you add more platforms later, just like Xamarin uh, Forms did, right? At the same time, like I started iOS and Android and they did more Windows and there was a Mac backend that was in preview and a Linux one that was supported by the community and then ties in, things like that. So it's all a matter of time, right? Before you want to target even more things, but you got to get the first version out. So then Frank can put we on the <laughs> down in Maui. But I agree, like right now I've been going back and forth as like, I'm like almost ready to try to convert some apps or do my next app in it. Like this time next year, like my next app will just be a .NET Maui app. I wanted to think about it. But like in December, I was like, well, do I do a .NET new Maui app knowing that's going to evolve and I want to get this app out? Or will I create a Xamarin Forms app, get it out in a few weeks because I already have all the code written and can clone it for the skiing app. And then I have a whole year until the next ski season, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, to evolve it if I want to, or Xamarin forms will continue to, to work, right? I, it's a it's a nice uh, world that uh, yeah we live yeah. in. Yep, yep, yep. And actually, I skipped over a little bit of uh, Nuno's question here. It starts with uh, Blazor is very much directed to web developers. I just want to address that part. Very much is, obviously. It's a web framework. It, it, of course, it's addressed to web developers. But... Hashtag, that said, um, I've written a tiny little game in it, and I'm very excited. The game of Ur I wrote in Blazor, and I'm Ooh, very cool. excited to try putting that into a mobile app because I still want to try releasing it as a mobile app. So I'm excited to try um, embedding Blazor into mobile apps. I think that's going to be a fun experiment. And that being said, I also note that I believe that Razor and Blazor are not that different than doing XAML based development. <laughs> the complexity is the styling. So head over to free code camp, go take all your CSS courses, <laughs> learn about CSS and which can also be used in Donnie Maui and Xamarin forms if you want to apply CSS, but that would go a long way or take a look at some of the frameworks that are out there. Like there's the mud blazer, there's the fluent framework that give you the pre baked nice controls that are all styled up. I think like that's the difference is I know how to style, you know, Xamarin forms and native controls. I just don't know how to do the web part of it. So, but I know how to lay down, you know, control like controls and labels and, you know, different things like that. But I think a lot of those components are super nice. Yeah. Yeah. Good time. Okay. Next one talking about client dev, we are rolling on the client dev and new features. See our client shenanigans, <laughs> client shenanigans. Nakana Zoo asks good, good poll. Good try. <laughs> Nakana's Nakanuza. Um three words. Comet, C sharp, MVU. Three words in response. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. This is one place where my knowledge and I, I'm so friend of the show, friend of the show, Clancy works on this thing. And I have to admit that I barely know how do do i even know how to use it i know how to use it because it's so simple so what is comet c sharp mvu you might be asking well have you heard of this little technology called reactive 
something. I forget what it's called. Have you heard of this other thing called SwiftUI? Well, it's SwiftUI for .NET <laughs> that runs using the same engine as uh, XAML does in MAUI and Xamarin Forms. Comment, I think, actually started Xamarin Forms. No, mm-hmm. actually, I think it was completely independent. I don't know how it started. <laughs> but um, what it is... Really, it's another style of programming. So we were just talking about React. We we all know our XAML style of UI programming. And MVU is kind of um, the React Blazor way, but in code instead of in, mar- in uh, HTML or markup. And it's an excellent way to write apps, see all the success Swift UI has had. Uh, but it is a different way to write your app. And therefore, I unfortunately just haven't spent much time with it. Yeah, as a seam, you know, Clancy and, and Javier and David and others have worked on it. And Clancy for a long time. A lot of people in the in Sweaky and a whole bunch of people from the community have, have um, worked on it here and there. And you're right. It's been a, a, a around for a long time. And it's it's actually in a .NET repo. Like it's github.com slash .NET slash Comet and an experiment. So it's an MVU, MVU toolkit. So that's the model view update, which is the same approach as like a I think you're right, like a React or a Flutter type experience. Fabulous, yeah. Fabulous. It's, well, it's the object-oriented. I, I hesitated because normally you call this functional reactive programming, FRP. Hmm. But I hesitated because MVU is, or at least the way Comet does it and the way SwiftUI do it, is kind of like the object-oriented take on it. So it's mm. not exactly like the Elm style. It's not like fabulous. It's the object-oriented way of writing in that style of programming. It's really fascinating. I absolutely love it, but sorry. Just had to interject there. Yeah, and it's something that to me I've you know experimented with a while ago. Um, they just did a .NET community stand-up, a .NET MAUI community stand-up on it. I'll try to put a link, if I remember, into the show notes. But it's also on the, the .NET YouTube uh, you can go over there and Clancy was on showing it off. And yeah, if you just want a code first approach, there's that. But I will also say that there's um, also like C-sharp extension helpers too. And the Xamarin forms and the .NET MAUI community toolkits that make today just using the, the built-in stuff a lot nicer if you want to build coded UI. Um, I'm just a XAML person, but I'm sure mm-hmm. eventually if I just, once the thing's out and it's past experiment and I actually get in it, as long as I know all the controls and the properties and stuff, I can put it in my mind and, and probably get it all to yeah. work. I wouldn't see why not. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 good tech because you and I have had this discussion over the many years we've known each other about whether to write our UIs in a markup or a code first way. Mm-hmm. I actually write most of my UIs in a code first way. So in, in that respect, not much has changed. Where this MVU thing is nice is it handles essentially the data binding problem, yeah. That's which is exactly what XAML is solving. Also, we use XAML. Guess what? Because of the data binding thing, it's an okay markup language, but it's really good at data binding, and that's why we use it for that purpose. Uh, that's one of the hardest problems. I've done code first UIs all the time, basically the last ten years, and you know refreshing the UI when the data changes and then sending those updates back into the data is the fundamental hard problem in user interfaces. And so any new take on it, I am honestly here for. I just need to do better and keep up. Yeah. And you know, you and I talked about this, oh geez, a while ago when we were talking about Blazor and Blazor Hybrid is I personally think I like the Blazor style of data binding better 
than the traditional XAML data binding because you can like shove a function in there. Mm-hmm. You can just bind it to a, a thing. It doesn't matter. It just like just knows when to do. You don't have to worry about property changes, all this other stuff. So each of these approaches, Blazor with the razor and, and the binding there, and also MVU with Comet, they kind of sort of, when we talk about minimal APIs, they started to remove some of that ceremony, if you will, I don't know a better word for it, but that that extra adornments and extra code that you have to write to to get things updating um, in those things. So I think that that is one nice part of this approach is that data binding concept. But again, they could technically, the, the Don and Maui team could implement some of that stuff like Razor does, and that would be kind of cool. And they've, they've done it in the past. I know there's been experiments. So yep. the, the Blazor mobile bindings, right? Yep. Um, these are all uh, advanced forms of binding, and I'm here for it because I, I'll just repeat myself. It's the hardest part of UI programming. So anything that tries to tackle the problem, I'm, it's so easy to draw up a UI. It's hard to make it react to data changes in a, in a good way. Yeah. Agreed. Onward. What's the next one, Frank? Onward. Well, Saqib asks, I'd be interested to hear if either of you are going to use .NET 6 for native mobile apps, or are you all into Maui? Well, this is just, we're turning this into the Maui show. I'm sorry, I didn't realize, oh, yeah. but it, it's such a segue. It's, it's what's on people's minds. So, of course, yep. it's fine. Um, so, Frank, must surely have an old code bases to bring along, question mark? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I have a many old code bases. And so on the last show I was talking about, I was building my first uh, small .NET 6 app, mostly as a test ground to figure out what what the implications are of building a .NET 6 app today. And my end result is, although there are many hurdles, it's still something I can totally do and that I want to do. Because it's, you can stick around in the past for a year, two years, three years, if you figure out the right like build incantations and you start saving everything in a downloads folder. But it, life is just so much easier if I just spend the couple days or whatever it takes to port the apps over to uh, .NET 6. So my biggest concern is for for new apps or semi-modern apps, it, the conversion's going pretty well. Um, it's just a matter of time and getting all the tools in place. For older apps, I get concerned about things like um, old iOS support. You know, I, I still technically support iOS 9, but I'm we, we have this discussion every year too. I'm really going to f- think I'm finally going to go to iOS 11 as my minimum OS. And although this conversion is painful, honestly, I don't like keeping projects in a dual state where it can compile both for .NET 6 and old Xamarin stuff. It's just one of those, it's a part of the job that you have to keep up with the times or else you're just creating more problems for yourself down the road. Yeah, you know, this also applies to libraries too. So for example, I just went down this rabbit hole of attempting to um, upgrade my in-app billing plugin library for not only supporting old Xamarin and Xamarin, you know, forms projects, but also all new, um, .NET 6, iOS, Android, .NET MAUI and WinUI 3 projects. And this huge mega TFM collaboration explosion <laughs> to specify different NuGet packages and use essentials instead of, you know, .NET MAUI essentials, Xamarin forms essentials based on your target. And, um, that was, uh, I got it working and I got it in CI working and it was quite, you know, not 
great to do, but I did it. It took me a few hours and I totally did it. And I'm very proud of myself that I figured it out. So then the question is like, Hey, how long does this, does this work? And, um, the issue I ran in there was to your last point, which was maintaining different CI services and builds and backwards compatibility, because the one thing I noted is that my Windows support for the in-app billing was back to like 16,000 or 1600, whatever the old, old one was, uh-huh. it's always built it against that. That doesn't ship and <laughs> compile in Visual Studio 2022. You have to compile against 19,000, whatever. So what I'm doing now is I'm actually building two NuGets. I have two CSProj files that reference all the same files, one with old TFMs and one with the mega TFMs. And I, and I sim ship a 5.0 version that is, hey, this is the old main line. And I have a new 6.0 version that has all the new hotness because I hope everything works. Who knows <laughs> if you're, if you need that, get 6.0, but if you don't stay on 5.0 and one's built against VS 2019 and one 2022. So realistically, Frank, how long do I do that for? Yeah, I, I, I was having this debate just today because I was getting continuous up in continuous delivery. <laughs> so I was trying to, uh, deployment, continuous deployment, whatever. I'm trying to get it up to, to test flight on build time. Mm-hmm. And I had this choice because I now have a .NET 6 Mac Catalyst version of the app. It still needs a lot of refinement. I'm not releasing it just yet, but I can technically just take that TFM at the top of the file and put the word iOS there instead of Mm. Mac Catalyst, and I can build my iOS app from that. I decided that's too big of a gamble to do just today because that's going to be something I need to sit down for a day or two and work out all the actual implications of it. Uh, getting that build working, especially because I do some nasty things in the build, you know. <laughs> so, um, but even then, even with this app that uh, does nasty things in the build, I'm still very tempted to do that cross compilation. We're, we're that close, so I figure even if it's not this year, it'll be next year where I figure pretty much all my apps I hope would be switched over, and I think. I, I hope I didn't say this last year, but I think it's about one more year of it being in this awkward in-between state where I'm building them in different ways. Yeah, I think the year in between is is good. But and, and OK, so back to Sakib's question, which was which you answered already. We kind of answered, but it says .NET 6 for native mobile apps, like just here's an iOS and Android app, which you're going to continue mm-hmm. to up and do your stuff. Or am I going all in on .NET Mount? Well, here's at least for me is I haven't built a you know, non Xamarin forms, iOS or Android or even Windows app in probably four plus <laughs> years, to be honest with you. I think probably since I evolved, I shipped the very first Evolve conference app, 2014, 2016. I mean, I went all in and to me, I've gone all in. So that's where I'm the most productive. I used to be really hyper productive on Android UI and I used to do all my coded UI for iOS and I was pretty good at it. But I'm just like really hyper productive right now in this space. So going to .NET Maui is means, you know, just change a few namespaces and combine everything into one project. And I'm still super productive. <laughs> so I'm all in on the on the .NET Maui trains. Um, not to say that I won't write plugins that access those, those native APIs. I <laughs> always need those native APIs. So boom. Yeah, that's it. I mean, yeah, P- P- PCLs for the rest of eternity. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> depends on your app, too. It depends on your app, right? No, like, no, you know. I, I have a counter argument. Um, oh, okay. I think I am all 
okay, no, I'm not all into Maui, but I'm partially into Maui mm-hmm. in that I'm going to use it as the starting point, the entry point for all mm-hmm. my apps. And even if I just do a frank thing and completely replace, you know, Maui with my own implementation of Maui that uses like the native the way I wanted to use the native and all that, I think I'm still going to use it as kind of the templating framework for the cross-platforminess of the Mm. apps because all the build system is writings on the wall. The build system is going to work best uh, for cross-platform app development with a Maui app. So what I'm doing today right now with .NET 6 is I'm doing native development, no Maui. I'm not even installing Maui on these machines. And I'm just accessing the native APIs because that's how I write my apps with native UIs. But we've talked about this in the past where Xamarin Forms and Maui, if nothing else, are just a framework for how to write an app. If I don't want to use their code, I don't use their code. It's not a big deal. But it's fine for me to use them as basically my startup routine (laughs) for like, you know, this is how to kick off the app. And then after that, I can either take as much control as I want or or as little control as I want. And this is all basically so I can support Android. I just want to do a better job <laughs> supporting Android. I, 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 I do love you, Android, and you know I, I need to have more apps on Android. Well, the funny part here, and we'll carry on over here, is that I was the inverse of you. Is that the actual reason I moved to even want to do more Xamarin Forms and now down in Maui is because I wanted my iOS applications to look <laughs> better. You know what I mean? Because I couldn't be an expert in both UIKit and Android XML and Windows XAML and all of them at the same time, but that's what a cross-platform library <laughs> gives you is it gives yeah. you access to multiple things um, at the same time. And now talking about that, talking about startup, which is funny enough, and talking about some of the new stuff that even is in .NET MAUI, which is multi-window support with Scene Delegate, <laughs> Sockup also asks, we could do this one real quick. Mm-hmm. is something called pre-warming in iOS 15, with oh which literally both you and I had no idea what this meant. Um, but he was asking, what are we using for our settings? SQLite, are we using <laughs> Keystore? Are we using preferences slash NS user defaults? They seem to be battling with iOS 15 pre-warming. Frank, what is pre-warming? Oh, boy. Okay, so I'm expected to remember what we just learned a half hour ago. Well, James... <laughs> As far as I can tell, what's happening in iOS 15, according to Apple, is from time to time, the operating system may decide that the user may launch your app. I'm assuming this is like when you do a spotlight search and they bring up the thing, right? So what happens is they execute, they basically load your app into memory and begin executing it all the way up to your main function. Now, if you write Xamarin apps, you may not realize it, but you do have a main function (laughs) and it does things. It kind of, mostly it just tells the operating system, please start the window event loop. It happens both on Android and it happens, it it happens for um, whatever, whatever they're called on Android, doesn't matter. Um, So, 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 so what's happening is Apple is launching your app but not displaying your UI and putting it in this terribly awkward state because none of our apps were ever put into this terribly awkward state before where all the data has been initialized, but our code hasn't been allowed to execute yet. And for that reason, all sorts of scary little bugs, I suppose, can happen. I highly recommend um, running away from all of this stuff. Now, and I believe this is only if you're using Scene Delegate, right? 
everyone should be using scene delegate. By the way, app delegate's been deprecated. Just so you know, James, every modern oh. iOS app should be using scene delegate. You got to get with the times. Every even file new project uses scene delegate. Get over it. So I need to watch this video um, basically from <laughs> DC to, to let me know what I need to use. Now, now there could be issues. What they're saying is like if you're using keychain or other things, there might be data protection things that may not run. So if I'm in my app, what, you know, where, what will I load? Will it try to load my main page of my, my Xamarin no. forms app? No, no, no. Because the way every program starts up in the world is you take its binary, you load that into memory. In that binary are a bunch of initialization, data initializations. So it goes and writes that memory. And then there's a bunch of little functions it's supposed to call before it calls your main function. This is so you can support like C++ constructors, um, module level C++ constructors, just to make sure that you can initialize uh, initial global variables. It's the code that does that. Basically, they're running that code, but then not running your code. So it's just putting your app in a weird state. Anyway, we both need to watch the DC video. I should stop guessing it how weird it is. Yeah, I need to just test it out. And I'm not sure. I um, I use Keychain and I mostly use preferences like all the time in my applications. And it's user defaults everywhere all the time. I only use SQLite when I'm storing data data. Like I'm storing data, but I don't ever load any settings or anything until my app is my UI is open. I think that yeah. that's maybe the takeaway is like, don't try to access keychain or preferences or databases until your app is open. Is that the takeaway? Uh, uh, yeah, don't, don't do It's It's not even that like you, your code can't execute. So mm. if you're running a pretty standard Xamarin app, you don't have anything to worry about here because you're, code shouldn't be executing hmm i don't know i don't know i don't know so let's 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 ditch the pre-warming we're gonna have to do a whole episode on it obviously so now we've got three episodes we, in, in the can that we need to we, make <laughs> we pre we just pre-warmed the a whole topic episode yeah for a whole episode but last I, question I, I, no no sorry i want to interject okay. with my actual answer because i didn't actually say i oh. i tend to use Xamarin essentials preferences also or whatever that is. But in a few apps, I have a favorite class that I use if it's an iOS app that um, uses NS user defaults, but first tries to access them using the iCloud ubiquitous key keys that you're allowed to yes. store. Mm -hmm. And what's really nice then is if you go through that layer first, and what it does is it goes through that layer and then falls back to NS user defaults. If you do that, then you get synchronization of uh, your settings throughout all your apps. And so I, I try to use that in my iOS apps. Yes, that is a nice one because Keychain is automatically backed up not, if they're syncing Keychain. Not Keychain, though. Uh, but so it's yeah, not Keychain. It's not That's Keychain. What I'm yeah. Right. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So keychain would be this is iCloud keys keys something. <laughs> yes. So so what I was trying to say because I didn't do it elegantly is if you are using keychain, it may be beneficial for you to also do this because your app could be in a state where if you're storing important stuff in keychain, that's backed up. If they uninstall, reinstall your app, you might get keychain stuff back, but not your preferences and defaults, which may be pretty important. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just like having and iCloud's free. If they're signed into iCloud, it's just a free feature. It just takes a little bit of code to set the settings in both places and then have yeah. a policy on how you fetch the settings. I got to go look into that. All right. Last question. What do we got, Frank? Oh, I don't know. What is the last question for cross-platform development, both mobile and desktop? What is the best advice to select development machines? Oh, this is my favorite kind of question. Their specs or even brands. Will Mac with Windows VM do the job? What about your own desktop environment? James, I love talking about desktop environments, but I feel like we do it too often. So I'll try not to go into too, too much gory detail here, but I'm still rocking my iMac Pro 2017, best computer I've ever bought in my life. It does have a hot pixel in the upper right corner, which is a little bit annoying. So I just don't look in the upper right corner. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's an Intel Mac and I feel like it's probably going to be my last Intel Mac and I'm probably going to have to keep it for all of eternity for mm. as long as I'm building apps for Intel because I'm going to need a machine to test them all on. And this machine also has a bunch of Mac VMs, not just Windows VMs, and I use it for that purpose. And so I feel like I'm going to have this machine for the rest of my life, but uh, as a test machine at least. But when an iMac Max comes out to 2023 edition, I'm, I might think about upgrading to one of those. Uh, Windows in a VM, does it do the job? It does the job. I still prefer uh, real hardware for running Windows just because ugh, VMs, I don't like them. Yeah, on my end, I have two machines to my two main machines. So my main machine is a desktop machine that I built. Um, it's running windows 10. I'm going to rebuild it at some point with a new processor, um, to do windows 11 on, cause this is a old 6,700 K. So a six series and I need at least a seven series, but now we're on like 28 series. I, I might switch from Intel to AMD. I'm not really sure. Just depends on what's available and nothing's ever available, but this desktop rig is my main work machine, my main coding machine, my main podcasting machine, my main YouTube video recording machine because it has 64 gigs of RAM It has a super fast SSD in it. And it has a crazy big processor that runs at, you know, yeah. 4.3 gigahertz. And I just love that it's fast and it can run all my things and it starts Look, quick, Frank. I, I always make the argument that you don't need fast. I started my iOS development career on a little MacBook 13 inch. And for years, I worked on just a little MacBook 13 inch. Mm -hmm. And it was fine. It honestly yes. is fine. Especially these new M1s. They're great. Go get one. But um, nothing beats 10 cores. <laughs> because yeah. like, you know, and I usually feel like I'm I like, what a silly purchase, because I have way more hardware here than I normally use. And by normal, I mean 99% of the time. But gosh darn it, when it lights up all those cores or if, you know, I'm doing streaming on Twitch, yeah. which somehow just manages to use core after core, it's nice to have that headroom there where I know I can run my app. My app is multi-threaded, so it's eating up a couple cores. I can run the debugger and I can run browsers and do all that while live streaming on Twitch. It I, actually makes me happy that there's 10 cores. So. Uh, Jawad, I'm, I forgot to say, this was a question from Jawad. And I would say, as in all things in life, spend as much money as you can on your day job computer <laughs> because yeah. it's your day job computer. Yeah, I it makes me happier. Like I, I mostly at work when I in Redmond campus, when I when when I would go in, 
I would just have a Surface Book 2, a, a big 15 inch that was there. And that was my work machine. And that was great because I was disconnecting constantly. But now I just work from home all the time. So I don't need to disconnect. When I hit the road, I use that machine. And that's really great. But I'm not using it all the time. But for many, many years, I, I, I worked with just a Surface Book um, laptop. I worked with just a MacBook Pro um, before you know my 2013. It's still there. It's nearly 10 years old. And it's, uh, it's awesome. My other machine, so I do have two machines, is my MacBook Air, which I've talked about, which is great. Now, I don't run a Windows VM, so I'm not positive how that would work. But if you're just doing iOS and Android development, it's pretty great for that, you know, in general. That's the M1, and they're pretty cheap and pretty powerful. Um, I might wait until, like, the next one comes out or whatever the M2 is or whatever. But at this point, just because it's pretty, you know, getting pretty close. Um, but if you need something, go grab something because they're, they're pretty good. But I think for me, what I've been telling a lot of people is at least for me, I have no, I don't think I'll ever go back into an office, probably never say never, but <laughs> it's not looking like it, Frank. And mm. I, when I first, when the pandemic first happened, I didn't have my rig set up. Like I had it set up and I would only stream from it. And it was at the other one over here. And I would just use my work machine as my Surface Book 2. But as I started wanting to run bunch of instances of Visual Studio and be on Teams calls and have a bunch of things open. I was like, I'm just going to go all in and intune my machine on my work profile. And I'm very happy overall. But again, I built this desktop machine and I think actually building a desktop machine is cheaper than a, a, a really high end laptop, right? You can decide oh, yeah. your monitors, you can get, you can get great monitors for a hundred dollars. You can get multiple monitors. Not that you can't get that for your, your laptops. But, you know, you can put together a nice rig. Again, I am running a i7-6700K. This is an old processor, but it is fast. It was a mm -hmm. top-end processor at the time. It's a, pro it's a chip that my buddy gave me. I didn't even buy this. But, I, you know, I put in, I, I started with um, 16 gigs of RAM, and I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to spend 200 bucks or 300 bucks or whatever it was and put 64 gigs of RAM in, and I just did it, you know, and that was quite delectable um, in general. But... I guess that's what I'm running. Yeah. But I agree with you. It's like, you know, what are all of the platforms you need to hit, right? Are you doing iOS and Android 90% of the time? Then probably a Mac is a great st start because especially for iOS, if you're only doing Android and Windows, you're probably a Windows yeah. machine. If you're just doing Windows and web dev, probably a Windows machine. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like only because like you said, like I don't mind virtualization. I use VMware and parallels for many, many, many years, mm. but I'm wasting precious minutes while other things boot up and <laughs> as things take more time, that's kind of my thought on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the VM thing that that's, we could do a whole another show all on that. The, the VM life. It's just a little bit laggy. You totally can get mm -hmm. used to it. And yeah. it's, yeah. it's how I develop, um, all my, all my windows apps. I do it in a VM. Now I do have a little surface something <laughs> that I use as my hardware tests for all my apps. Um, so I, I do have one, at least hardware windows machine. Yeah. And then you got talking about building beautiful machines. Yeah. There are wonderful deals to be had. A pro tip out there is when Intel releases a bunch of big processors, 
they're usually pretty expensive, but there'll always be like a cheap one in the bunch and just find the cheap one in the bunch and get it with as many cores as they got. They're, they're always trying to liquidate sales on one of them. Get as many cores as you can get, get as cheap a RAM as you can get, that it's as big as you can get, and you can build yourself a gorgeous machine for 500 to to $1,000, depending on how much you want to burn. And I do, I do that for a Linux box because it's not a part of my day job, but I do love mm-hmm. neural networks and I need a good Linux box for it. And that's what I've done with the Linux box. And it's totally satisfying because then you get that uh, uh, PC builder itch out. <laughs> it's yeah. fun. Yeah. And, and like, like you said earlier, like, you know, do what you can afford, like whatever your budget is and based on your requirements, what you're going to do, you know, there it's, there's a route to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you will definitely be happy with a nice portable machine, but it's worth the money. It's definitely worth the money to get a powerful machine to do work on. I agree. I agree. All right, everyone, that's going to do it for this week's Merge Conflict. Thank you so much for tuning in and for your awesome suggestions for the lightning topics. Of course, we'll be back next week with some awesome stuff. I'm really excited for the next few weeks, for every week with you, Frank, but really for some really cool topics. So make sure you subscribe, tell your friends all about the podcast, and you can, of course, submit your lightning topics or give us feedback on anything by going to mergeconflict.fm. There's a contact button, or you can tweet at us on Twitter, at Proclarum, at James Montemagno, at mergeconflict.fm. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. And I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace.